Welcome, 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 welcome to the Vanderbilt Internet Medicine Podcast. This podcast is made by and for our internal medicine residents to enhance our educational experience. The content while edited by residents is not verified by hosts or speakers, and we are not content experts on these topics. The content provided by the podcast is not intended and should not construe as medical advice and should not be used to diagnose or treat any medical condition. We tend to avoid use of opinion, but all opinions are presented are our own and are not represented of employer. Please keep this in mind as we enjoy our podcast. Welcome back to the Vanderbilt Internal Medicine Podcast. Today we have with us PGY3, Trevor Stevens. Trevor, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you guys for, for having me today. Absolutely. We are we are very lucky to have you. And Trevor, what are we going to be talking about today? So today, our, our main goal is to learn how to systematically appraise literature, but we're going to do it in a fun way by learning about the Paradigm Heart Failure Trial. Nice. That seems like a pretty lofty goal, but I know anything is possible with you, Trevor. So. <laughs> no, I, I appreciate that. You, you set the bar really high for me. <laughs> Trevor, do you want to start out before we get into our lit review and the paradigm trial with some background on you real quick and a fun fact about yourself, maybe, mm. or about hummingbirds? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So for those who are interested, uh, hummingbirds have a heart rate of about 1,200 beats uh, per minute. So just imagine that EKG. I, I want you guys to try and, and read that EKG. That's right. <laughs> uh, but a little bit about me. So this is my second time on the podcast. I'm really excited to uh, be back. I am a big uh, fan of basketball. I uh, love things outdoors, running, biking, hiking. I play the piano in my free time, and I'm an avid listener of the Black Eyed Peas. And then as a hobby, I, I like to learn a little bit about medicine. <laughs> wow. Great um, um, music selection, by the way. Black Eyed Peas. That's a dark horse band. I love that. Trevor, what is your favorite Black Eyed Peas song? Mm. Uh, Meet Me Halfway. Wow. Uh, for wow. sure. Should we get into what we're here to talk about today? Yeah. So let's begin a little bit. I want to talk briefly, really just in the past year and a half with COVID, there's really been this expanding pool of research in medicine. And that's how it's always been. There's ever-growing data with that. And it can be increasingly difficult to determine what is good research and what is bad research? So knowing the names of trials that help verify the effectiveness of our modern day interventions, that's important. But even more important is to be able to efficiently appraise the literature for high quality evidence and to understand the flaws and limitations of that research. So the goal today is to briefly show you how to systematically evaluate literature, how to evaluate research. So just as a disclaimer, what we're going to talk about today, it's, it's really only the tip of the iceberg. So I'm going to skip some steps so that we can finish this podcast in a reasonable time. People spend years studying this, but we're going to try and do it in 20 to 30 minutes. And just as, as an example, step one would be to establish, is the article relevant? But if you're reading the article, we're just going to assume that it's relevant. We also aren't going to discuss conflicts of interest, but in this day of age, it's really important to know that as well. So keep that in the back of your mind. There's no right way to do this. One way to do it is you could say, you know, what if my awesome program director, Dr. McPherson, <laughs> what if he gave me unlimited resources, gave me billions of dollars, he gave me three years of research block? How would I design a trial with the perfect protocol that reduces bias and maximizes truth? So it's really fun to imagine, but I'm going to highlight a different system for you guys today. But I just want you to know there's there's certainly multiple ways to cut the watermelon. What's important, though, is that you have fun doing this and that you have that systematic approach so you don't miss things. You need to do it the same way every time. So really, this episode is to 
hopefully help you establish a foundation for reviewing data that can grow with deliberate practice. So Trevor, this seems like a really daunting task, albeit extremely important given that on the wards we talk about trials and these RCTs all the time. How are we going to go about tackling this? Yeah, so in order to make this relevant and relatable to everyone, we're going to tackle this by approaching a landmark trial in 2014 called the Paradigm Heart Failure Trial. I'm going to be referring to this simply as Paradigm throughout the, the podcast. So really throughout this, I hope to throw in some fun examples and, and discuss important aspects of bias. Trevor, that sounds great. For those of us who are not familiar with the Paradigm Trial, do you want to give us a little background on the trial itself? Yeah, definitely. So a lot of people in medicine are likely familiar with this paradigm trial, but for some background, let's start with some terminology. HEFREF, or heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, is defined as patients with decreased left ventricular function. And that's defined as an ejection fraction equal to or less than 40%. It was known prior to the paradigm study that angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors, or ACE inhibitors, and angiotensin II receptors, or ARBs, sometimes I'll call these ARBs during this episode, that these reduce mortality and morbidity in patients with HEFREF. They reduce afterload, reduce myocardial hypertrophy, and reduce fibrotic remodeling. Sucubitril is a neprilysin inhibitor, and this is a medication that decreases the degradation of natriuretic peptides, and thereby physiologically it decreases sympathetic tone, decreases fibrosis, and it stimulates naturesis. So theoretically, the addition of sucrubitril should benefit patients in HEFREF, but really until 2014, before the paradigm trial, it was unknown if the addition of sucrubitril actually added any benefit. So to answer this question, the paradigm trial was developed. Paradigm was a randomized, blinded, and controlled trial. It was completed in 2014, and it assessed if treatment with an angiotensin receptor, neprilysin inhibitor, combination pill, or entresto, entresto is the name of the pill, reduced cardiovascular mortality or heart failure hospitalizations in patients with HEFREF when compared to enalapril. The results showed that Entresto had improved cardiovascular mortality or reduced heart failure hospitalization of 21.8% compared to 26.5% with enalapril. This is a number needed to treat of 21. Wow, Trevor, that's pretty significant. Yeah, an NNT of 21 is, is pretty good. So it was a great outcome, and it led to the FDA approval for Entresto and heart failure patients a year following its publication, which is it's pretty incredible for a single trial. They approved Entresto, or the angiotensin II receptor neprilysin inhibitor combination pill, without a confirmatory trial. That's pretty significant. I know that normally we do have confirmatory trials when this kind of data comes out. Right, but the FDA was able to approve this after a single trial. So does that mean that the door is pretty closed on the effectiveness of Entresto? Well, that's a really great question, Jared. I think we need to decide for ourselves. So what's our first step in systematically approaching this? Yeah, thanks for asking, Tara. The first step that we need to do is ask, what is the research question? So in order to answer this, we have to ask a few things. A, who are the participants being studied? B, what is the therapy, intervention, or exposure? And C, what is the outcome being studied? So in simple terms, the participants in paradigm are patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. 
The intervention is Entresto, or more specifically, it's a combination pill of Secubitril 97 milligrams and Valsartan 103 milligrams twice daily. The outcome is morbidity or quality of life, e.g. a decrease in hospitalizations or mortality. So we can identify these subgroups because it leads us to determine what the ideal study design is, and it can also help us analyze for bias. Trevor, I think I may speak for not just myself in this, but it's been a while since I've covered study designs. Do you mind just running through that real quick for us and give us a refresher? <laughs> Absolutely. So I think we all feel that way. I'm going to run over just three of the main ones here, just for lack of time. The first ones I want to talk about are observational study designs, and there's two of these that you guys need to be aware of. The first one is a, a cohort study design, and this is where they look at groups with risk factors, and then they follow these groups with respect to a disease outcome. So think about the studies they did that showed smoking leads to an increased risk in lung cancer. They identified participants uh, who were smoking, and they followed them and found that smoking leads to an increased risk in lung cancer. The other observational study is a case control study. It's where two groups are identified, one with a disease and one without a disease. And then these two groups are analyzed for possible causal attribute of the disease. So you find the groups with the disease first, and then you go back to look for exposures and risk factors. The last one we're going to talk about today is randomized control trials, and we're going to talk about this more in depth because this tends to be some of the most common trials that we see in medicine, especially those landmark trials. Randomized control trials, the subjects or the participants are assigned to either an experimental or control group. And Trevor, when exactly do we need to think about using randomized control trials and when are RCTs particularly beneficial? Yeah, great question. We use randomized control trials to assess therapies or interventions that have potential mild to moderate benefit. And I want to emphasize mild to moderate benefit here. We don't do randomized trials to assess for interventions that are harmful, uh, e.g. we wouldn't randomize someone to smoking. And we don't do randomized control trials to assess for interventions that have known significant benefit. And, and just for example, would you, Jared, Tara, would you guys want to be enrolled in a randomized trial that assesses the benefit of a parachute when jumping out of a plane in comparison to a placebo? <laughs> I think I want to be in the parachute arm. What about you? What about yeah. you Hopefully it's not a crossover trial. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I hope the answer is no for everyone. In 2018, there were 13 skydiving fatal uh, fatalities uh, total and an estimated 3.3 million jumps. So let's just say that's a 99.999996% survival rate. So parachutes have a significant benefit, so we don't do randomized control trials on them. However, in medicine, there are few things that are known to have that significant of an impact, and so most therapies need to be tested in a randomized control trial. Thanks, Trevor. That, I think that clarifies some things, but why is it important that we use randomized control trials? It's important because they help control two things. One, when patients are enrolled in a, in a randomized control trial, it sets the time point to zero for all patients at the time of randomization. This is not the same for cohort or case control studies, as the time in relationship to the data points can vary. So to explain this, I'm going to use an analogy that Dr. Robert Yeh from Harvard uses that's called the Cheeto analogy. 
Let's just imagine you've designed a retrospective study of patients, and you're following them 60 days after they suffer a heart attack. And in your clinic, you find that those who ate a bag of Cheetos live longer than those who did not eat a bag of Cheetos after a STEMI. Why is this? Well, in order to eat a bag of Flaming Hot Cheetos, you have to live long enough to eat one. <laughs> this is called a mortal time bias, or as Dr. Vinay Prasad called it, the guaranteed Cheeto time bias. So randomized control trials, it anchors the time to zero, and it helps minimize this type of bias that you can get in observational studies. Trevor, now I just kind of want to eat a bag of Cheetos. Yeah, well, hopefully it'll help prevent you from that first heart attack here. Perfect. Right. <laughs> the first one that I'm going to have. Exactly. Yeah. The other point I want to make about randomized control trials is that it also helps control for confounding. Uh, we touched briefly on bias, but we're going to talk uh, more about this further when we break down our subgroups. Before we move on, I also want to take some time to touch briefly on external validity of randomized trials. The external validity, if you remember, evaluates the extent that you can generalize the study to other situations and other participants. The external validity evaluates the extent that you can generalize the study to other situations. So to determine this, it's important to be able to differentiate between a pragmatic study versus an explanatory study. Trevor, can you just clarify real quick the difference between those two? So a pragmatic study looks at the effectiveness of an intervention within a real-world context. A lot of physicians here uh, know about the SMART trial, uh, which was done at Vanderbilt. It looked at lactated ringers versus normal saline in critical ill patients. That trial had minimal inclusion and exclusion criteria, and it included almost all of the patients that it could. So pragmatic trials, it really looks at interventions within that real-world context. These groups are often randomized as a group or in clusters, and so the external validity of these trials are really broad. It includes a lot of patients. An explanatory study uh, looks at the effectiveness of an intervention in a really tight controlled setting. So it has strict inclusion and exclusion criteria, and patients are often randomized individually as they enter the trial. So really the importance of knowing if a study is pragmatic or explanatory is important because it helps us determine which patients would benefit the most from the intervention. And where does our paradigm trial fit in with all of these different types of studies? So the paradigm study looks specifically at heart failure patients in a tight controlled environment. It has strict inclusion and exclusion criteria, and it's not really generalizable to other patients. So because of that, it's an explanatory study, and it has narrow external validity. So just to make sure I'm understanding appropriately, Trevor, we have a, a patient population, an intervention with a suspected mild to moderate improvement, and an outcome. It seems like a randomized control trial was the appropriate study design for Paradigm HF. Is that accurate? That's right, Jared. And that's exactly what they tried to do in the Paradigm trial. They used a randomized blinded control trial. So we were able to answer our first question. The trial design was appropriate for our different groups. But I think it's time to break down these subgroups a little bit more so that we can look at potential bias in these different groups. Okay, so Trevor, we're going over step one. What is step two? So step two of this is looking and breaking down those subgroups. And specifically, we're going to talk about the participants group first. 
We're going to talk about their demographics and how they were selected in Paradigm. So let's take a look at how they were screened here. Overall, in the Paradigm trial, there was 10,500 patients who were screened. Initially, the patients with an ejection fraction of equal to or less than 40% were included. And notably, that's the EF um, that the abstract in the paper states in Tresto is beneficial. However, by looking closer at the selection, inclusion criteria for the ejection fraction was actually reduced to 35% partway through the study. We also need to know that the average age of participants was about 63 years old, 21% were female, and 66% were Caucasian, and only 6% of the participants were African American. Of those 10,000 patients, 2,100 of those were already on enalapril at enrollment. They were on an average dose of about 16.4 per day. I talk about this now because we're going to discuss this later, so just keep this in the back of your mind. All patients here in the trial had to be on a stable dose of a beta blocker for at least four weeks prior to enrollment. And any patient with a systolic blood pressure less than 100 or a potassium greater than 5.2 at screening were excluded. Now, here's where things get interesting. By analyzing the methods, we were that not all the patients were initially randomized. All the patients first had to enter an enalapril run-in phase, and a run-in phase can be common. Here, it's where all the patients were blinded to taking 10 milligrams of enalapril twice a day for two weeks. Notably, at this point alone, 1,100 patients were lost to follow-up, and about 700 of them suffered an adverse event or had an abnormal lab. Following the enalapril run-in, they actually held the enalapril for 24 hours, and then all patients were initiated at a dose of Entresto at 100 milligrams twice daily, and then subsequently increased to Entresto 200 milligrams twice daily for four to six weeks, for a second run-in period. Remember here that the ARB component of Entresto was Valsartan. About a thousand participants were lost to follow up at this stage. So after the second run-in period, Entresto was then held for 24 hours and a total of 8,400 underwent randomization to either Entresto or Enalapril at a one-to-one ratio. Important to know is that after this randomization, patients who had unacceptable side effects, the dose of the drug that they were on could be reduced. Trevor, this screening period seems odd or something that I'm not quite familiar with. Can you kind of explain what a run-in period is and why they did it? Yeah, absolutely. Run-in periods before trial are common. It's where all of the participants receive the same intervention to make sure that they can tolerate the intervention during the study. Now, a single run-in period for a trial is common, but what's odd here in this study is that they had two run-in periods, one where all patients were on enalapril for two weeks, and then a second one where all patients were on Entresto. So they had two run-in periods, which is very rare. Awesome. Thank you for explaining that. I guess what we really want to know is, was there bias in this selection process? Yeah, and that's ultimately why we assess the methods. So when assessing the patient population and the screening method, here we're specifically trying to determine, is there selection bias? So remember, selection bias occurs 
when, and it's exactly as it sounds, the selection of participants is not representative of the overall population or our goal population. We're not going to go over all of the different forms of selection bias, but I do want to highlight loss to follow up here. Remember, less than 5% of participant loss is ideal. Over 20% of loss to follow up is a significant threat to the validity of a study. Anywhere between 5 to 20% can still lower the validity, but it depends on the quality of the study. So let's take a look at this in paradigm. First, our loss to follow-up was about 20%, and that's just through the run-in period, which, as we just mentioned, is a pretty significant loss. We also know that the article abstract claims that Entresto was beneficial in patients with an EF or ejection fraction less than 40%, However, the protocol shows that the inclusion criteria uh, for ejection fraction was actually reduced to, to less than 35% partway through the trial. Lastly, the patients randomized to the control group had to be switched off in Tresto. Remember after that second run-in period, they held in Tresto for 24 hours, and then they randomized groups either to Entresto again or Enalapril. The patients that were switched from Entresto back to Enalapril, while it may not have been significant, remember that changing medications can potentially be a punishment and lead to side effects. So that control group potentially could have been punished for that last switch. Trevor, I also noticed that with the demographics section that there was only 6% African Americans in the trial, and it seemed like it was a majority older white male population. Is that correct? And is there any selection bias, you think? That's right. Only about 6% of of the patient population was African Americans. And that's a really good point. I'm glad you mentioned that, Jared. We're going to talk about this a little bit more in depth when we discuss the conclusion for our outcomes. So I think we kind of touched on that some of our internal validity is potentially threatened by selection bias. And we might revisit that a little bit more in the discussion. But what about our intervention? Yes, the intervention is the next group we need to look at. And this is a really important aspect of the podcast. So I encourage you to to listen closely to this next segment. When assessing the intervention, we first need to know if the control is appropriate in comparison to that intervention. We know that Entresto was used for our, our intervention, but let's look closely at the contents of the drug and the dosing. Entresto is broken down to Secubitril, the neprilysin inhibitor, and Valsartan, the angiotensin II receptor blocker. The dosing for this is Secubitril 97 milligrams and Valsartan 103 milligrams. And this is equivalent to about a, a dose of Valsartan 160 milligrams twice a day. Wow, Trevor, that's pretty intense. Yeah, that's a really whopping dose of a drug to have something that's equivalent to Valsartan 160 milligrams twice a day. It'd probably make most of us dizzy. But more importantly, 160 milligrams twice a day of Valsartan, that is the max dose of Valsartan. So this drug is equivalent to the max dose of Valsartan. Now remember, while the study drug could be reduced during the trial, most patients actually remained on the higher doses of the drug, with the average daily dose of about 375 milligrams per day across this study. So most remained on those those higher doses. And I know what you're thinking, Jared and Tara. Your first thought is that all this heart failure talk is really making me want to reduce my salt and sugar intake. <laughs> you, you got that one right. <laughs> 
but also it's still really hard not to eat at the pancake pantry here. <laughs> so hard, yeah. My second thought was, if Entresto consists of a combination of Secubitril and Valsartan, with a dose that's equivalent to Valsartan 160 milligrams twice a day, why do the researchers choose Enalapril 10 milligrams twice a day? Is that dose of Enalapril, is that even equivalent to a 160 milligram dose of Valsartan? Well, it turns out that Enalapril 10 milligrams is only equivalent to Valsartan 80 milligrams. Patients here in the trial, really similar to the Entresto branch, the patients that were taking enalapril 10 milligrams twice a day, most of those patients were able to tolerate that dose. And the average dose that they were taking was 19 milligrams per day, plus or minus three. So let's just take a moment to reflect on this. What do you guys think? Do you think that our control here of the enalapril 10 milligrams twice a day is actually appropriate for our intervention? Well, if I'm hearing you right, Trevor, it sounds like you said that enalapril 10 milligrams is equivalent to valsartan 80, which was half the Entresto dose. So it sounds like it wasn't a, a great control. Is that right? So this dosing is going to be really important moving forward, and it's potentially a huge factor in determining if our outcome is due to the addition of secubitril or is more dependent upon the dosing of your ACE inhibitor or ARB. So we'll discuss further if this is actually appropriate as a control. So we've taken a look at the participants and the intervention. What is the next part that we need to assess? Yeah, so last of all, we need to look at the outcome of the paradigm trial. As we mentioned earlier, the primary outcome was assessing to see if Entresto had improved cardiovascular mortality or a reduction in heart failure hospitalizations compared to enalapril. The results showed that Entresto had a rate of cardiovascular mortality and hospitalization of 21.8%, and that's compared to 26.5% with enalapril. I just want to take a moment here to dig deep into our biostatistical back pocket and remember how the number needed to treat is calculated. This is actually calculated by 1 over our absolute risk reduction. So in order to do that, all we have to do is divide 1 by 26.5%, which is our, our mortality and morbidity of enalapril, minus 21.8%, which is mortality and hospitalization with Entresto. So 1 over 26.5% minus 21.8% gives us a number needed to treat of 21. So that means that treating 21 patients with Entresto will prevent one death due to cardiovascular causes or hospitalization due to heart failure. Again, I know we talked about this at the beginning, but 21 seems like a great number needed to treat. Right. For interventions, that's, that's pretty good. But I do want to pause for a moment to say that physicians often overestimate the benefit of our medications and therapies. While that absolute risk reduction of 5% is great, and it really is great, you still have to treat 20 patients before you can see a benefit. Now, for those who are interested, there's actually a website that has these numbers. It's called thennt.com to view quick summaries of evidence-based medicine and to see the number needed to treat of some of our interventions. Moving on a little from our number needed to treat calculations, we also need to look at the secondary outcomes in the paradigm. And this showed that all-cause mortality in the Entresto group was 17%, compared to about 19.8% in the Enalapril group. There was no difference in the development of new atrial fibrillation between the two groups. So we've been systematically combing through each section looking for bias. 
in the outcomes, where do we need to look for bias, Trevor? So when assessing the outcome, we need to look for information bias here, or does the collection of data skew the truth? Remember, this is recall bias. It's also interview bias or observer bias. Patients who are part of a trial may behave differently, especially if they know they're part of a trial and that can skew the data. However, randomized control trials really, and especially if they're blinded, they really reduce information bias. The Paradigm trial was randomized, it was double-blinded, and it was based on objective endpoints, so this makes observer interview and recall bias unlikely here. One side point that I want to make when looking at outcomes is that in medicine, we often look at mortality and morbidity or quality of life. Other outcomes can be important, but be wary of research that does not include this as an endpoint, and be careful of extrapolating that data to other endpoints. For example, tumor shrinkage in patients with cancer is not as important if it doesn't lead to an improvement in mortality or quality of life. And we can't assume that one leads to the other. I think that's an important point to make because some studies use surrogate biomarkers or a certain lab value as their primary outcome when really, as doctors at the bedside, we're trying to make differences in people, how long they live or how well they live. So I think that's important to keep in mind when evaluating data. Right. What patients really care about is the mortality and improvement in their quality of life. Okay, wow. Guys, we have talked about a lot in the past 30 minutes. (laughs) What a journey. So Trevor, do you want to briefly just summarize what we've been through so far and takeaway points? Absolutely. Number one, to summarize, no one here would like to be in a randomized control trial assessing a parachute versus a placebo. <laughs> I think that's correct. important. That is yes. correct. Oh, but you guys wanted me to talk about the paradigm if trial. You yeah. yeah if you okay. Want. Yeah. So paradigm heart failure was an explanatory randomized, double-blinded control trial done in 2014 that compared Entresto to Enalapril. The study design is unique, and it included an extensive two run-in screening periods that lasted about six to eight weeks. Our participants were initially patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, with an EEF or ejection fraction of 40% that was subsequently reduced uh, to less than 35% partway through the study. The loss to follow-up was approximately 20%. The intervention compared in Tresto, 200 milligrams twice a day. Remember, that's Secubitril, 97 milligrams, and Valsartan, 103 milligrams, with an equivalent Valsartan dose of 160 milligrams twice a day to Enalapril, 10 milligrams twice a day. The conclusion of the paper's authors was that in Tresto reduced cardiovascular mortality or reduced hospitalization due to heart failure in comparison to enalapril. So, this leads us to the final and perhaps the most important question. Does the data we just looked at justify the author's conclusions? So, as we've noted throughout today, the study has some flaws. We know that the external validity of the trial related to heart failure patients, but which participants actually had benefit? Was it patients with an ejection fraction less than 40% or perhaps only in patients with an ejection fraction of less than 35% but not 40%? 
The study design doesn't really help clarify which of those groups is representative of, of our goal population, especially given that they decreased the ejection fraction to less than 35% as an inclusion criteria partway through the study. So really, in which group do we start in Tresto? As we talked about, loss to follow-up of 20% is significant, and it can lead to selection bias and skew the data. We also know that only 6% of the participants in the trial were African-Americans. This is important. The Office of Minority Health has shown that African-Americans actually have worse outcomes than other groups with heart failure. It was previously thought this could be due to genetic susceptibility, but current research actually shows this doesn't play as large a role as we previously thought. This, in part, is likely due to complex racial disparities, lack of access to care and housing, implicit bias, and other novel factors. So it's just important to keep this in mind. Other flaws, and perhaps the most notable of the flaws in this trial, is the intervention in comparison to the control. Ideally, Sacubitril valsartan or Entresto, would have been compared to only valsartan. The only component that would have been different between the groups would have been the addition of secubitril or that neprilysin inhibitor. But instead, the authors chose to pursue enalapril as a control. Traditionally, we think of trials as drug A versus drug B or drug A versus placebo. But this is unusual because it's actually drug A plus drug B versus drug C. Further, we mentioned the Entresto dose is equivalent to valsartan 160 milligrams twice a day, which is not equivalent to the enalapril 10 milligrams twice a day. While the study drug doses could be reduced during the trial, most patients actually didn't require reduction. The authors justified this dosing by stating prior literature, which showed the dose of 10 milligrams twice a day of enalapril showed a reduction in mortality and heart failure. But this isn't really similar to real life, where we can increase enalapril all the way up to 20 milligrams twice per day. So in simple terms, the intervention was allowed to get the max dose, but the control arm was penalized as the enalapril was capped prior to the max dose. When thinking about this, an important question to ask is, could the patients randomized to the enalapril 10 milligrams twice daily have actually taken a higher dose that's equivalent to the valsartan? And if so, would this have changed the outcome? It's a really difficult question to answer without trial data, but we actually can do our best guess to estimate an answer. Remember back when we said that 2,100 patients initially enrolled in the trial were on about 16.4 milligrams of enalapril per day, plus or minus 8.3 milligrams. People much smarter than me actually looked at this, and they performed math based on the standard deviation, and they estimated that approximately 14% of these patients were already taking higher doses of enalapril at either 15 milligrams twice per day or 20 milligrams twice per day before enrollment. While this is only estimated for those previously taking enalapril, if 14% of this group was on a higher dose, then perhaps others across the board could have taken higher enalapril doses, especially knowing that the majority of these patients tolerated a dose of Entresto in the run-in period that was equivalent to Valsartan 160 milligrams twice a day. Now, once again, this is only an estimate and our best guess. We can't really truly know the answer of how many patients could have tolerated a higher enalapril dose unless it was actually done in the trial. But nonetheless, because of this, it's hard to determine if the actual reduction in cardiovascular mortality 
or reduction in heart failure hospitalization was due to the addition of secubitril to valsartan, or if it was more dependent upon the dosing of the ARB or ACE inhibitor. Trevor, I think it may be important to mention here, just based on our experience inpatient, a lot of times patients can actually tolerate these higher doses of the Entresto, and a lot of times we'll see patients start on the minimum dosing, which I believe is 24, 25 they can't tolerate it either because of their kidney function or their potassium or most often their blood pressure. So I think it's important to note that a lot of patients we put on Entresto actually don't make it to the maximum dose that has this studied mortality benefit. Right. And that's a great point, Tara. This study specifically looked at patients who are on the max dose of Entresto. And as we said, they could reduce the drug dose a little bit during the trial, but most patients were on that max dose. So patients who are on the the lowest dose of Entresto, I don't know based on this trial if they have the benefit that they would from those who are taking the, the max doses. So overall, patients on Entresto probably do have benefit from the drug. But what is the true extent of that benefit? And that really leads us back to our our really important question is, does the data that we looked at justify the author's conclusions? And I hope that today we show the importance of systematically going through this, and I hope we explained it in a fun way. This has been great. Thank you so much for taking us through this. I think given everything that you've told us, that the answer would be yes, the data does justify the author's conclusions. And I I think it's important to note here that it it does justify the author's conclusions in comparison to enalapril 10 milligrams twice a day. But the important question is in real life, where we're able to increase those doses of ACE inhibitors or ARBs, does Entresto add benefit um, in comparison to our max doses of ACE inhibitors or ARBs? And I think it, it could, but I can't say for certain without a confirmatory trial. Mm-hmm. It sounds like what we can take away from this is likely we will continue to be prescribing our Entresto. But ideally, after talking to you, Trevor, I too would like to see maybe a confirmatory trial or maybe some follow-up studies. The other thing I would like to add is this has really made me more, makes me a little bit more inquisitive as to what is the data behind the you know medicines that we prescribe and the decisions that we make from a day to day? And that was the goal for today was to help you guys uh, establish a foundation for systematically looking at evidence. I'm gonna try to listen to some Fergie songs on the way home, Trevor, in honor of you. So I yeah, hope that's you, appreciated. you definitely should. <laughs> <laughs> and meet me halfway. Okay. All right. We'll see you next time on the Vanderbilt Internal Medicine Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks.